Hello, everyone. Welcome to How We Work, a podcast about the very real and very human dynamics that shape the way we work. I'm your host, Dr. Misha Ann Martin, and I am the Senior Director of People Analytics and Research here at WorkHuman. Y'all, this week we are live in Atlanta at WorkHuman Live. It's been fantastic, actually. I've been having a great time. But today we have a special treat. We are joined by... Cam Ward. He is the head of diversity and inclusion and belonging at LiveRamp and the founder of Black Men in Tech. I am so excited today to welcome and host Cam Ward. Hey, how you doing? Thank you for the invite. Super excited to be here. I'm trying to contain myself right now, but I'm excited to have this conversation. Listen, we're all about being human and being excited. Do not contain yourself. Do not contain yourself. All right. So let's talk about Black Men in Tech, which you founded. Black Men in Tech, which I'm also now so passionate about, by the way, aims to support young black men in finding paths of opportunity in science, engineering, and similar fields. Can you talk about how the idea occurred to you to found Black Men in Tech in the first place? You know, that's a beautiful question. It was simple, out of pure need. Like, I needed a space to be able to be my authentic self. Think about the barbershop, right? So summer 2020 was really rough for the Black community. We had several consistent murders that happened. And as a diversity officer, I have to show up in a certain way for the organization in order to help others. But then I thought about, well, what about me? What space do I have to be my authentic self, to be sad, to cry, to be emotional, to be mad, to be frustrated? And I cultivated five brothers. We started on a call called Uncensored, and we started just talking about life, right? Like life in the sense of diversity work and how we have to show up one way at work and then how we literally, if you will, take off the mask and be who we are at our home and in our personal life. And I built that space. And it started off with five brothers. Six weeks later, we had about 300 brothers on a call. And we all were talking about our fears in life. Like at that point in November of 2020, like I was afraid literally to walk out my house and take a walk down the street. Because these things were happening in a such a consistent way in our community that I was afraid, like, and I needed an outlet. So, brothers, we had this conversation. We started out in November, and as it grew, I was like, we have to make it something. It can't be just us talking. We have to be actionable. We have to rewrite the urban legend, if you will, about how black men show up in the corporate and workspace. Made it a nonprofit. We did a conference in June. In six months, 8,500 people showed up. 27 countries were represented. And it started to continue to catch fire. And from there, now our community is over 3,300 people. And we have gotten over 75 people jobs through the pipeline. And that's the most important piece. Uh, We want to provide access and opportunities to individuals that are black men in the tech space. And we want to support them. That's so much good work and so needed. And I want to get into it. But before I get into it, I do want to ask you this question. It's so sad that we can't just show up as ourselves and how we feel at work. A lot of us, right? That's true for a lot of us. What can organizations do to help people feel like it's safe to show up authentically, 
even when stuff is going down in the world, right. like the Buffalo mass shootings of yes. this past weekend. What do organizations need to do? My suggestion is treat people like people, not like chess pieces. And that's as simple as I can put it. You got to have space for individuals to feel how they need to feel and support that. Now, I understand that leadership might not be as woke all the time, but you are human, right? Mm -hmm. And you can parallel and translate things that happen in your community, in others' community, in your community, right? So you can, people can get around loss, People mm-hmm. can get around mass shootings. People can get around these sort of things. So even if you don't necessarily understand, provide space and opportunity to support individuals and give them mental breaks. And that's as simple as I can put it because it's important to treat people like people and treat people like humans and not just a chess piece. And when you provide space and grace for individuals to be able to feel what they need to feel, they feel supported. You don't necessarily have to have representation all the time. You have to have a heart for people. So if you truly want to be a people first culture, you would literally just allow individuals the space to be able to operate in a way that makes sense for them and not try to always control and dictate, right? And education is a big part of it. So educating leaders to understand how to work with individuals that's different from them through culture, intelligence, and all of that stuff. But at the root of it, if you treat everyone like a human being, yeah. and it sounds so easy, but sometimes it's so tough, you can understand and feel what they feel as well. So you said the word support a lot since we started talking, mm-hmm. right? And something else you talk about as a fundamental piece of black men in tech is the neighborhood. I, mean, yes. I remember the first time I heard you <laughs> yes. talk about it, I was like, wait a minute, the neighborhood? <laughs> yes. I want to know more about this neighborhood. That, yeah. that feels good. Right. And it feels supportive. Right. And I want you to tell us a little bit about the idea of community building within this organization and the importance of that. Yeah. So when the first thing you hear black men, everyone says not for me. So we want to be able to foster this neighborhood where just like in a physical neighborhood, everyone isn't the same. Your neighbors might not look like you, might not eat the same food as you, might not even put the same seasoning in the food as you. But They're not using jerk seasoning? No. Oh, okay. No lorries, no. But guess what? You're in the community. Right. You support each other. Their kids are your kids. Right. Everybody plays in a cul-de-sac. And if you don't have a cul-de-sac, everybody plays in a road, football, basketball. Mm -hmm. You know, kids are running around. We want to foster that same environment because the major thing that's going to make black men in tech more successful is the ability to provide the neighbors, the ability for us to galvanize and rally around black men for their success. Mm -hmm. That's going to be the most important thing for our success. So creating a neighborhood is saying basically, hey, you might not be like me. Hey, you might not look like me. Hey, you might not even listen to the same music I listen to or believe all the things I've, but we're in community together. Mm-hmm. And only through that community building will we as people be successful. There's no point of this hierarchy where some of the cultures are doing good or some of the race and ethnicity or some of the genders are doing good and not all. Mm-hmm. Right? We need to be able to support each other no matter what happens. And that's what the neighborhood is. An opportunity to rally around Around a group of men, black men, that may need the assistance and the support, the access, the availability, the conversation to take themselves to the next level. 
So I know Black Men in Tech has an outreach arm. Mm-hmm. I want you to tell our listeners some of the things that you have done for the neighborhood. Right. So our neighborhood is a, a bunch of people from different backgrounds and different things. So, for instance, the neighborhood includes our collegiate effort, right, and high school effort. So we have a collegiate and high school effort, trailblazers and pathfinders, where we're giving out scholarship, $1,000 book stipend to our collegiate individuals that are studying STEM, and not just men, women as well. Right, because we support our whole neighborhood, so we're giving out a thousand dollar book stipends in that way. And for our high school level, we're actually doing new laptops. And the reason why is two things. First thing, when I went to college, I had no laptop, so I know how difficult it was that first two semesters with no laptop. I want to make sure our generation of youth that's going to study STEM have the equipment that they need to be successful. Second part is, went to school, didn't have money for books. And books are the first thing you can negotiate in your process. You're like, I'm going to take this class, but can we borrow the books? Can we share the books? Can I copy photocopy pages mm-hmm. out of the books? Mm-hmm. There's only a true correlation between you having what you need in the school system and your grades. So I want to make sure our students are prepared, just like other students are prepared, to be successful, giving them the same toolkit. And that's the most important piece. I met a student that had a 5.5 GP. I think I told we talked about this. Yep. I met a student, and she was actually going towards college. She had 5.5 GPA, pillar in her neighborhood, teaching people how to swim, fourth in the Junior Olympics and everything, right? She's getting a total scholarship somewhere. And I talked to her after a breakfast and I was like, it's so amazing what you're doing for the community. I love it. I want to upgrade your computer. My assumption, I thought she had a computer. And she was like, I don't have a laptop. And I was like, well, how do you have a 5.5 GPA? Because I know when I was in school, that's my excuse. <laughs> That's my excuse as to why I, I'm not succeeding. And she said, I go to the library. I literally talked to that student. Within two hours, I went to Apple. I told Apple what I was doing, and they helped me get this young woman a laptop. Now she has like six scholarships for Ross or whatever wow. for a bunch of different schools. But it's just in that moment when you meet people, the small things you do in life can make a huge impact to an individual. And that's exciting to me. I want you to talk about the human element, though. Cam, what happens when you roll up to a classroom? Yeah. You know, and surprise these kids, because you've told me about it, right? With laptops or tablets, tell our listeners about the reaction that you get when you do that. Yeah, so in January, I call it tablet pull-up. I love that name, first of all. Can we just pause (laughs) on that name? Tablet pull-up. Okay. Yeah, so... I call it tablet pull-up, and what I do is every semester I pick a school that is in need of the technology to be successful. And in January, we went to a school in Dallas, and I pulled up, I rolled up with 70 new Amazon uh, tablets, and I gave them to fourth and fifth graders. Now, it's really cool because when the fourth and fifth graders walked in the room, they said, I heard a couple, they was like, why are we here? They was like, they was like, did we do something? Then you hear the whispers, did we get caught? <laughs> like, like, right? But you hear you hear the conversation because they don't know what is going on. And when I talk to them, I tell them about my organization. I ask them, do they love tech? They say, yeah. I tell them how many of them got technology in their home that they use. Everybody's like, we got a cell phone. You know, some of them like, we have nothing. And I roll up and I just say, you know what? Because you all are so special, your teachers and your principal decided to make you all the individuals that get this brand new Amazon tablet, and they erupted. And to me, coming from a background where I had nothing, 
it's always important to give back to the community because I've learned so much from my community. Now it's part, it's like to whom much is given, much is required. That's right. So much was given to me from my community, good, bad, and indifferent. And I want to make sure every student that I can touch has the necessary tools to be successful because in our neighborhoods, there's two choices, really. You're either going to play sports or you're going to choose the street life. Why can't tech be that third option? Because you play sports, not everybody make it to sports, so not everybody going to get a scholarship. Mm-hmm. It's easy to choose the street life, but that's not going to get you nowhere good, either dead or in jail. For me, why can't tech be that third space that allows you the opportunity to use your brains, your talents, your excitement to build games, to build computers, to meet other people? Why can't that be the third strand? So that's what makes me excited, especially with my fourth and fifth grade. I love, the, <laughs> love those little kids because they, they're just so innocent. And a lot of things happen to them and not a lot of people give them opportunity to be their true self. Awesome. So we've talked to a lot of different people in the diversity, equity, inclusion, mm-hmm. social justice space. And one of the things we're talking about with everybody that I want to talk about with you is How do we make these efforts sustainable, right? Mm -hmm. Because after the George Floyd murder, Mm -hmm. you know, people are motivated to do something and then does it last. So can you talk about how organizations make sure that they make this work sustainable and how you're making sure that black men in tech, those efforts are sustainable? Well, first of all, it can be performative. Right. And I say that with a grain of salt, understanding that individuals, organizations, whomever, we as people, humanistic nature, you want to capture the latest headline. You want to be on the front edge of the cutting mm-hmm. edge. You want to send a hundred word essay on the black background, white mm-hmm. writing, hashtag it with something. Right. Oh, I've be, seen those. Right, right. So you want to do those things. Right. In order to say, you know what, we're progressive. And you could take any situation. We have multiple, no matter what situations happen in the world, you know, AAPI, the right to choose. You could pick so many and everybody wants to say, I want to be on the cutting edge of this. But it's only for a season. Right. right? It's only to the headline die down. People are losing their lives in, in this case, particularly on video. It's impacting people. It's like, I want to do it. And then it kind of die down because the product need to be sold. We need to make more money. We mm-hmm. need to da da da. What needs to happen, and I'm a firm believer of what needs to happen for in order for diversity as a whole to become sustainable, is that the same way we see product, in the same inferences we put on product in order to sell, in order to be great, only to make money, we need to put the same emphasis on our human capital. Because our people is the one drive the product. Mm-hmm. And if our people don't feel as though they're seen, heard, understood, then how can we ever sell a product? How can that be the priority when our people are lacking? So for me, for it to be sustainable, it has to be top of mind at all times. Mm-hmm. It can't be just for the moment. It can't be for the next hashtag. You know, we live in a world, sadly, where hashtags are going to happen frequently. It can't be performative. It has to be something that is ingrained in the DNA of any brand or any company in order to be sustainable. You can't show up in a way that's unauthentic because us as underrepresented individual will suss that out quickly. Mm-hmm. And when you're being unauthentic in any space, now we looking at you like, hmm. So because of that, in order for it to be sustainable, it has to be something that's at its core. Yeah. That regardless of anything else happening, we're going to do this the right way. And I think that's the most important piece. So in order to make Black Men in Tech sustainable, you have to have buy-in from organizations as well that really want to do the work. 
Not even just put your money where your mouth is, no, but put your resources, put your head count where your mouth is. Mm-hmm. All right. And that's important. Like if you come to the conference, bring two jobs. We're going to hire people. It's less about putting your brand up there. It's more about what do you add into our community for us to be successful. And that's the sustainability. Not everybody's not going to get on board, which is fine. But at the same time, the ones that do, we're going to be life partners because they see the importance of always showing up and showing out for a community that's underserved. So you also talk about the role of vulnerability and trust in this. Can you talk a little bit more about how companies can develop those traits, particularly like, as you mentioned before, you have leaders that may not really understand so I said a couple of things are important to build diversity or inclusion or equity in a space that makes sense. You got to have trust, transparency, and vulnerability. Those are the three ingredients. If you have all three of those, then you have created a space where belonging can happen. So when I think about vulnerability, that's probably the toughest piece. And it's the toughest piece because people don't want to be transparent. People want to show you who they are and not just walk into a room and say, hey, this is me. And because it makes people uncomfortable, people shy away from vulnerability, I found that in order to get leaders that look different from me to buy into me, it's not about Cam, the awards, it's about Cam, let me tell you where I started my journey. Let me tell you who I am. And then from there, we find some kind of connection and synergy. When you break people down to the core, we may all look different, but we can all get around something happening or something transpiring or a sports team or our faith or our love for family or Mm -hmm. something that makes us connected. When you're vulnerable, it allows you to connect one to another. Yes. Right? Because then you have an opportunity to really get down to the core. So me, Michelle, maybe two different people. But when we get down and say, hey, man, you know, I grew up like this. Or, hey, I mm-hmm. did this. Or, hey, I did that. Or we're talking about things like why our community don't connect with the fact of having job opportunities and being celebrated about taking care of family. Vulnerability helped create trust. Trust helped create the transparency of connectiveness and it helped individuals grow together. So when you're growing, it's uncomfortable. But if you're vulnerable, because it's uncomfortable, it allows you to grow one to another and as a unit in a connective way, moving along this journey called diversity in a way where you're walking hand in hand. I love that. All right. So, you know, as a data person, I'm not going to let you get out this booth without talking data, sir. I know it's coming. I know it's coming. All right. So we live in a very data-driven world. And as you have talked about before, quantitative data alone will not solve the systemic issues underpinning DEI work. Can you talk about shifting data back to the conversation of this human-centered work? Like, how do we incorporate more qualitative perspectives as we measure our efforts and progress in this space? Yeah, so I knew you weren't going to let me get out. I wasn't. Mm -mm. (laughs) So here's the deal. So here's my perspective. Data is what holds us accountable. It don't lead the conversation. Because when you treat data in a diversity realm as the leader of the conversation, again, it makes it a product, right? It makes it less human, right? It makes it about the numbers and figures and not necessarily about the people. Here's my take on it. My take is that we create systems saying we want to say something like we're going to increase the knowledge of leaders or hiring managers around the top four topics around diversity. Now, on the back end, we will say 
we want 50-60% of the leaders to go through this by the first two quarters of the year. The data is holding us accountable for the work. Outward facing, we're saying what we want to accomplish. Because think about this. I start the gym every year. New Year's resolution. I got a goal weight. I meet that goal weight about mid-year, you know, if I'm really hustling, mm-hmm. right? And then what happened? I stopped going to the gym. Why? Because my number was the fuel for why I did something, Okay. Right? So if I say 50% of the people need to go through the trainings, da-da-da, whatever, once we get to 50%, people are going to say, hey, I did it. Now leave me alone till next year. But if we say we want to do this thing and then we drive it with the data, hold us accountable in QBRs, hold us accountable at every check-in, hold us accountable with analytics, that's going to continue the cycle of continued success because we know when we create systems, systems outlive projects. Projects is we're trying to reach a goal real quick. We're trying to change behavior and culturally shift the way we think about diversity work. So definitely data hold us accountable, and it's going to drive what we do on the back end. On the front end, we just say, hey, we're going to do this because we want people to be fired up about the process in which we're doing and not focused on the number. But we're going to check them every QBR and say, hey, listen, you're not doing well. Like, what's going on? Your diversity talent isn't looking that good. Like, here's the metrics. And we're going to benchmark it against other companies and benchmark it against the total ecosystem to ensure that we always want to lead and and be successful. But again, we're not saying outwardly first, hey, this is what we're trying to do, because we want people to trick their mind into believing that they're always doing the work and not that you're doing it to hit a certain number. Yeah, yeah. So how do you pull qualitative data into that, though? Like, how do you pull the human element and the impact of some of these things into the way that you measure and communicate about progress. So it's about storytelling. It's literally storytelling. It's about the individual that I shared with you prior to us coming on air about the fact that how this job changed his life. Pulling two or three stories, but honestly, what I found successful is finding out what pulls at leaders' heartstrings and then attaching that to the story. So every leader in any organization is very different and what motivates them is very different. So when I craft the story at the quarterly business reviews or at a check-in or at a monthly setting, I always have a story, one story, that incorporates why this stuff matters to them and why their heartstrings are pulled up. So I, again, lead with the process tell the story as to why this process is important, and then run the data to hold us accountable. This works out like this. Quarterly QBR, we're talking about talent, for instance. Talent, great resonation. Talent is a big topic. All right? So we say, hey, engineering, here's the process we want to run. Here's why it's important. Here's a story. You have a hiring manager that went over and beyond. Da 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 da. Really excited. You know, get them all worked up, right? <laughs> like, like hit a gear with them. That's like, oh, oh right. yeah, my team is doing great, right? And they say, here's what your metrics look like. Now, now here's what your metrics look like. Here's how I can help you. Yeah. Right. Walk hand in hand with individuals. Don't just show them something. Here's two things. Keep it simple that we can do over the next two quarters to improve this. Would you want to partner with me? Could you help me do this together? Could we be teammates? That type of, if you will, path or flow chart has allowed for great success in my career, being able to cultivate people into doing things that they don't really want to do. It blows my mind how you can have a successful day job and then do all the things (laughs) that you've been doing with black men in tech. Like, do you ever sleep? 
No. Okay. <laughs> no. Explains no. Explains a lot. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's honestly, it's, it's about being purposeful, right? This is not a passion project for me. This isn't something that I want to do. It's about walking in your purpose. And when you really walk in your purpose, you go over and beyond to make sure that things are set up in a way that you can be purposeful for the way that fills your cup. Fills my cup is helping our community. Fills my cup is making sure black men see and are represented in the space. Fill my cup is changing the narrative. I have many different stories that I can share with you and probably take all day about when I've walked into spaces and been stereotyped and yeah. no one knows who I am yet. Yeah. Right? I didn't mean know who I am as like, you know, uh, brass or know who I am like, oh, I'm Cam Ward. No, no, no. Know that I'm not an athlete. Well, I was an athlete, but I'm, at this point, I'm not an athlete or know what I do in life, you know, and that sort of thing. So, Every time that hit me, it impacts me in a way that it takes like a bit of me yeah. out. So now I want to make sure each man or each each set of men that walk into a space don't feel that same thing. This is powerful work. And you haven't really been doing it that long. <laughs> you accomplished so much in the space of how long? Like 20 months. <laughs> Jeez, Cam. With a day job. Okay. Right. All right. So I want my final question to be about black men in tech and bring us back to that. So again, you've accomplished so much. You have been so forward thinking in the way you've created this and, and rolled everything out. But I want to end with what is your vision for the future of black men in tech? My vision for the future of this organization is for it to be a pillar and a staple in the tech community where we are a pipeline and we support our high school, our college, and our elementary students, students to actually expose them to the tech space. For example, I'm working with a HBCU to open up a cyberspace opportunity where individuals can come into and, and learn tech. I want to create these hubs all over the country where we can really find success. Just exposing students to tech, prepping them for interviews, being able to provide technology that's needed in our community so that we eliminate tech deserts. There's plenty of spaces in America where tech deserts are created for lack of technology and lack of individuals like our organization going in and assisting in and helping. So the future of us look like conference is cool. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a way to convene. But the care and connecting pillar, because I want individuals to understand that there's a space for you, especially black men, there's a space for you where we can thrive and be successful and without fear. Yeah. Right? So true space where we belong. And so that's what I hope the future of Black Men in Tech is. That is so inspirational. And I am honored to be on this journey with you. You know, I I ride with Black Men in Tech. (laughs) Okay. So I want to thank you once again for joining me on How We Work. And thank you to everyone out there listening. To learn more about the work of Black Men in Tech, please check out their website, blkmenintech.com. If you like what you're hearing, rate, review, and subscribe to this show. For more stories, insights, and videos about how we work, follow us on all social channels at WorkHuman and subscribe to our newsletter in the show notes. This episode of How We Work was hosted by me, Dr. Misha Ann Martin, produced by Mike Lovett, and edited and mixed by Rob Folloy. We will see you with a new episode in a few weeks.